It's really good to see you all on Easter. Uh, and I always hear pastors make some kind of jokes, like it's the Super Bowl of church life or whatever. Um, and, and I get a little bit of that. I mean, Easter is a, a unique day and a day we come to celebrate the resurrection. But that's always mixed to me too, of um, the fact that on this side of the cross, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Um, and we as a church, I mean, uh, we won't bust out the bells and whistles per se. I mean, I'm glad we have a full band today, uh, but um, we're not dropping balloons from the ceiling or something like that and, uh, and doing something that if you come back next week, you're like, this is a different church than what I experienced on Easter because um, we, we want you to have the resonate experience. And for us, we'll talk about the cross and the resurrection beyond Easter as well. And so um, uh, it's, it's a normal day and not a normal day all at the same time. Uh, and that's probably the right, right spot for Easter to be in. And so we will sing songs, certainly focus on the resurrection. We will spend time in the word, focus on the resurrection. Um, but at the same time, like this is the thing we get to celebrate every week uh, as followers of Jesus. So I will start us with the thing that um, is a wonderful tradition for this day again, uh, as Sarah already did, but he is risen and uh, for many of us, um, we, we come in with all sorts of different perspectives on today. And some of us, like, just getting to say that's a celebration. And you come in here and you're ready for Easter. You're, you're, you're coming in ready to celebrate. You want to celebrate the fact that God has rescued you and redeemed you and given you a resurrected life, put a spirit in you, and Easter's just a wonderful day and you look forward to every year. It's like the, 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 the highlight of the church calendar to you. And that's wonderful. But I know that's not everybody. And perhaps you come in here with lots of questions more than answers and ready to celebrate. Questions about the resurrection, questions about this whole thing we call Christianity to begin with, and questions about church, questions about um, the, 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 the stories that we actually have of the resurrection. And, and Easter's still a little bit of a puzzle for you. Or perhaps you used to go to church and you haven't in a long time, but today's just for whatever reason, a family member, a friend brought you, or maybe the Holy Spirit just kind of prompted you to be like, I, I should go, and I don't know why, but, but I'm going to be here. And maybe you haven't come in a long time because of stuff in your past and baggage and hurts, but, but you're here today. And it's interesting, because today is more than the emotion and the feeling. It's certainly that. And the celebration of today is certainly there, but... My hope is that as you walked in, like, it just did feel a little different. And, and there was something unique coming in. And my hope is that what you feel ultimately is just God's presence in his people, particularly as we celebrate the resurrection. And for the most part, not much is different. But yes, you can see our cross is a little different uh, today. <clears throat> Uh, there's quite a tradition in the church called the flowering of the cross. Uh, if you uh, visit churches, particularly in the suburbs or in more rural areas that have a little more land, uh, they will place a few crosses out in front of the church, and then on Easter Sunday, usually we'll have uh, various flowers attached to the cross. It's a wonderful tradition. Yeah. And I love the image of it. Uh, I love that behind me has sat dead pieces of wood for, for years, uh, well, not years here, but we've had that cross for a while, dead pieces of wood uh, that, that seem lifeless. And then you come back on Resurrection Day and it's green and verdant and filled with uh, what looks like life. Though I'll confess it's not living, but um, 
it stays greener longer that way. Um, but just spring in general and all the symbolism that is there. And, and growing up in, uh, I grew up in Miami, uh, we didn't have seasons. Uh, we just, it's summer and Christmas day. Those are your seasons. Uh, and so it's just, it's just tropical all year round. Um, but coming to Georgia was wonderful and getting to experience the seasons, getting to experience the leaves change and getting to experience uh, an actual winter. And for those of you from the north, yes, Georgia has winter. Uh, it's just not quite as cold. Uh, but, but we still have that where everything is dead, where all the leaves are gone, everybody's yard is brown, and, and it feels kind of dead other than some evergreen trees to remind us that, that not everything is. But then there's the wonder of spring, something I just didn't get to experience growing up in, in Miami. And, and at the beginning, kind of late winter, the magnolias and the forsythias and the hellebores all start popping out and flowering. And then guess what? It can still be very wintry. <laughs> and it can still be very, like yesterday, hello. It's like winter just showed up for one day. And, and, and we have these moments where it's like, not quite spring, but these first messengers to let us know, hey, summer will come here again, and things will be restored. And that's what these little flowers help kind of give us these moments. In the midst of everything feeling dead and lost, you have these flowers to go, hey, summer's coming. And it may still feel cold. There may still be a few winter storms to come. But one day, summer will be here. And I think there's so many analogies in that and what the first Easter was even a bit like. <clears throat> Almost like this flower that burst forth. In the midst of what seemed like winter, it didn't suddenly usher in a full summer, but it was this sort of moment to go, okay, the time when everything is bursting with life will come. We're not quite there. We're still in the midst of a spring, but it's coming. And the resurrection just has so many of these beautiful images tied into the flowers and the cross. And anyways, my, my hope today, in, in this day where we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and focusing so much on that, where there's a heightened sense of God's presence, a heightened sense of thinking and talking about it, but my hope, my hope is that in the midst of that, that we actually see Jesus as he is. And what I mean by that is that it's really easy, I think, to miss out on Jesus. And we actually see that in the stories of some of the first disciples. Time and time again, we sort of see these stories of people missing out on Jesus because he's just not what they expected him to be. That they're, they're even walking with Jesus in moments, and they can't actually see Jesus. Like their eyes, eyes can't recognize him. That, that the Jesus who actually went to the cross was different than what they expected, and, and, and what he accomplished redefined their past, present, and future, but are still struggling to see him. Now, let's be real. I think you can have a deep devotion, perhaps, to Jesus and still miss him quite often. Or perhaps you come in here and, and you haven't put your faith in Jesus and you're, you're missing Jesus. You're struggling to actually see him because what you're 
what you have in your, in your head is a wrong picture and wrong expectation of who Jesus is as well. Maybe taught poorly, maybe communicated wrongly. So I want to take a look at the story out of Luke, in Luke 24. Luke's the only one to tell this wonderful story, and I think it's one of the best stories in the New Testament. Um, and it comes right on the heels of the resurrection. So Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem, had spoken about his kingship and his kingdom. Uh, everybody was uh, having some fervor about this Messiah, this king who was going to be coming in, and there was, there was much excitement. But then he gets arrested. He goes to trial, and he gets put on a cross, dies a criminal's death, gets laid in a tomb. Most of his followers nowhere to be seen. And on a Sunday morning, a few of the women that were following him go to the tomb and find, find it empty. And an angel's there to say, hey, this is real. And they go running back and start telling the disciples about it. And uh, everybody's really wondering what exactly happened. And this is where we pick up the story, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them, uh, so the them... Disciples, that's, that's sort of pick, coming on the heels of telling the story of the disciples. Uh, we get one of their names, which is Cleopas. We don't know the other's name or uh, even the gender of the other disciple. Uh, they are outside of the 12. Jesus had more disciples than just the 12 that followed him. They're just called the 12. Um, but he had more than that. It says, uh, they were going to a village named Emmaus. Tuck that into your back pocket for now. We'll come back to that. About seven miles from Jerusalem. So a couple hours journey. They were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So you can imagine what they're talking about. Because if you're a disciple, if you were described or identified as a disciple, particularly of a rabbi, you have likely left everything. You've left your jobs. You have left uh, kind of family in some ways to go be followers of, of a certain rabbi. And so these men and women have, have left things behind to follow this Jesus. And from what we will gather from what they say, expecting him to do a lot. Expecting this rabbi coming into town who has been talking about being, uh, ushering in the kingdom, speaking about kingship. And he's been using this language, this understanding of what uh, Israelites would, would call Messiah, this, this anointed one. And he is ridden into town on Passover, which is like Independence Day for them. He's ridden into town for this celebration. He's been talking about his kingdom coming. And that's what they're, that's what they're almost expecting. And then he gets arrested. And he gets crucified. And none of the things that happen fit any of their categories. Now imagine, I mean, for, for maybe years, you have given your life and devotion to this thing and then it ends really in an instant. And they've heard rumors. There's some women that have come and said his body's missing. And it seems like they're like, never mind, we're, we're, we're going home if Emmaus is their home. Because the revolution didn't show up, at least in their minds. And the death was a shattering tragedy for some of these disciples. Just a tragedy. They had such a different story in their heads of exactly probably how Passover week was supposed to go, and it didn't happen. 
And the one they expected to deliver them was on a cross, and it was devastating. And then who shows up? Verse 15. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And there's so much about this. this as, as people that on the outside listening to the story, there's so much about the story that's wonderful. And Jesus' conversations are, are great here. It's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? It's fascinating. And they can see Jesus. They're, they're going to interact with him here. He's not like an invisible ghost passing along, but they don't recognize him. And the question is, why? What's, what might be keeping them from recognizing him? So let's keep reading. Verse 18, then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Which is great to ask Jesus, because not only does he know what happened, he is what happened in these days. Uh, he is the center point of all the storytelling right now. Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, I don't know if Jesus said it that way, but that's how I like to read it. Um, <clears throat> and they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, and we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now they just showed their hand. I would argue this is the thing that is blinding them. They just exposed the thing that was blinding them. But for them, they looked at Jesus' crucifixion as not a victory in any way. It shattered everything they had hoped for. If he's supposed to be this Messiah, then he is supposed to redeem Israel. And the crucified with the Messiah was so outside of what they expected. And everything they think that made Jesus a failure was exactly the thing that made Jesus victory. So let's unpack this word. We get a word like redeem or redemption. Now, at least in our modern vernacular, when do we ever use the word redeem or redemption? Yeah, coupons. That was the first thing last time too. You redeem coupons. Or if you have kids that go to like Dave and Buster's or Chuck E. Cheese, you get tickets and it says like redeem this thing. And so you can redeem it for prizes and stuff like that. What else? What about in like movies and TV shows and stuff when we, when we use the word redemption? What is that usually implying or telling the story of? Yeah, comeback stories or like when there's something tragic or horrible and it gets transformed into something good and stuff like that. It's like redemption sort of story, which is great. And I don't think either of those words or definitions are wrong. But in the Bible, it's not always exactly how that word gets used, at least the, the Hebrew term. Often throughout the Old Testament, the idea of redemption actually tends to refer to a bringing back into a household, a family, the protection in, in this patriarchal culture, protection of the father, the figurehead of the family. And so like you'll read a book like Ruth and, and it'll be about redeeming the individual back into the family line. That something or someone is lost or marginalized or held captive by something else, and it's bringing it back into the fold and into protection. Now, the first time we really encounter redemption in Scripture is, is a unique story, a really important story. And it's actually out of the book of Exodus. 
And so when the first time a word appears in scripture, or a big concept, it usually is important to, to understand where that first time is. Um, and it's right before Moses ends up going to Pharaoh. God's speaking at him in the burning bush, and this is what he says for Exodus 6. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God." who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So it's an important story. Certainly an important story in Israel's history, right? They had been uh, held captive uh, under uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians uh, that, that ruled at the time. They had been subjected to slavery. And, and they had been called, crying out to God because things had gotten so bad. And God answers and says, look, I am going to bring my people out. I will bring them out. I will bring them back into my fold. I will bring them, uh, I will be to them like a father, almost how he describes, uh, or like a husband and sort of how uh, the, the, the sort of Sinai works. And, and so he, he's going to do that. He's going to do that by enacting great acts of judgment through these plagues. And ultimately there's a lamb that's going to be killed and his blood's going to be spread on the door and God's going to draw his people out to bring them back. It's a liberation. A liberation of slaves who are being oppressed to a captor and liberating them to his care. Now, what week did Jesus die? Right. What are they celebrating on Passover? This story, right? This is, this is the Exodus story. It's their Independence Day. It's the day where they sit down and go, hey, we were once under a captor, and God delivered us from that captor. There's a reason why Rome is showing force during this week because it's their Independence Day. And so when two first century Jewish disciples are expecting redemption, what are they expecting? Who's the first century Pharaoh? There's a few options, but Caesar's probably the main one. Maybe some religious figures in Israel too, or Herod. Who's the first century Egypt then? Certainly Rome. Rome's there. And so they are spending a whole week retracing the story of how God actually brought the people out from under uh, uh, oppression. And this is what they're expecting this Messiah to do. And so when he's crucified on a Roman cross, that, that thought that redemption is going to take place is just not going to happen. He was supposed to destroy the Romans. This is Passover. This is when redemption happens. Why is this not happening and there were prophets and poems and songs all about this coming day when deliverance was going to happen. And they were anticipating what they called the day in scripture. This day when Israel would be restored and all the nations would come flooding and, and seek the blessing from Israel itself. And Israel would have their king and God would be their God again present with them. And so they had to have been thinking after this death going, what just happened? And where are these two guys going again? Emmaus. And we all know the history of Emmaus, right? No, of course not. Um, but Luke mentions the city name. And when Luke does certain things, it's usually because those people were well-known. So Cleopas might have been actually a well-known disciple. Most people think he was. Um, or because those cities and towns matter. Uh, he just loves to include details. 
So if I said I was going to Gettysburg this weekend, do you think it was because like, oh, there must be like a really good coffee shop that he wants to go see or something like that, right? No, I say I'm going to Gettysburg, you assume, because a giant battle had happened there and I'm going to visit the, the memorial and stuff like that. So to a first century person, when they hear about Emmaus, there's a lot of context for them. We're not first century Jews, so we don't catch it. But, but Emmaus, particularly if you uh, might have a Catholic Bible or an Orthodox Bible, you're going to have a few more books kind of in the middle there. And in those stories, they tell an important historical story. And so at some point, uh, after our Bibles, most of our Protestant Bibles end, there's some more history that happens. And eventually the Greeks show up to town, and Seleucids are in charge. So at one point, the, the captors were the Seleucids, the Greeks, and they're all over uh, Israel at the time. And they were doing all sorts of terrible things. They put some pigs in the temple and stuff like that. They did all sorts of terrible things. And so eventually a group called the Hammers show up. These Israelites called the Hammer show up and and lead a revolt. Now we may know them by their Jewish name, which is called the Maccabees. They show up and they win a victory against the Greeks and kick the Greeks out. And for the first time since Solomon was on the throne, Israel actually experiences some independence as a nation. And so they had this experience of redemption. And guess where that whole battle took place? Emmaus. And so you, you got to imagine, Luke, it's not, yes, it might just be happenstance that these two are going to Emmaus, but Luke could have just said they were traveling on a road. But Luke's pointing it out. Hey, they were heading to like Revolution Town where this giant battle of redemption happened. And they're going back to the place where they probably heard story after story after story of Israel's deliverance from captors. And they're wondering what the heck just happened. So, because they had to think, we're going to storm the Antonia Fortress. The Romans had built this big fortress to overlook the temple just to keep control of things. We're going to storm that. We're going to reestablish things. So how do we also connect the dots from this story, this history to us? Because I, I think perhaps this is where so many of us actually are. We expect Jesus to be a certain kind of God and Messiah. And we struggle to actually really see him because we have so much expectations placed upon him that may not be exactly who he is. Or maybe some future fully restored version of him. Because hear me, will God eventually deal with all the enemies who oppress Israel? Sure. They're doing so unjustly? Absolutely. Will he do it in the way they expect? No. So perhaps, like, oh man, I expected Jesus to be a healer. Yet healing has not come. That family member or the friend, they still pass away from cancer or whatever. That ailment that I'm dealing with is still here, even though I've prayed for healing and healing and healing. I've heard Jesus is a healer. Why am I not healed? Or we view Jesus to be a, a certain kind of political figure. Right? Jesus will clearly support the party I support, whether you're red or blue. A view of Jesus that's a bit cosmic Santa-ish. Jesus wants us to have good things. Whenever I ask for it, I, I expect him to deliver those good things, whatever I ask. That's what he said. I'll give us the desires of my heart. A view of Jesus who just deals with my enemies. Who's an enacting of, of judgment and, and 
fixing unjust things is only for my enemies? Or a view of Jesus who alleviates suffering, suffering just really wants us to be comfortable. Jesus, to work out all of our circumstances in life. My marriage should be fixed, Jesus, why is it not yet? This job should have worked out, Jesus, why is it not? My finances are struggling, why is, why is that, Jesus? And because we bring so many of those things sometimes to the table, we really struggle to actually see Jesus as he is. They're all mixed in there. And hear me, is Jesus a healer? Yes. Is it springtime and there's still storms? Yes. And so that's a struggle. And Jesus has been saying all this. Jesus has been telling them all along, hey, let me tell you about some uh, weeds and tares and how you just can't tear up the field because it's going to be mixed together for a while. Let me tell you about a kingdom that's like a mustard seed, and it's going to take a really long time to grow. Let me tell you all these stories. Of, let me tell you about suffering and how you guys are going to kind of have to suffer like I do. It's like, hold on, Jesus. That's not what I expect you to be. And Jesus gives us a very different definition of redemption, or at least a different method and, and goal. And it wouldn't involve killing Rome's army. It wouldn't involve killing anybody other than himself being killed. And so many disciples just missed out on these strange teachings. It's difficult teachings because Jesus said it. It's like, hey, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. And it was so bewildering. Peter's like, no, you're not going to do that. (laughs) Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. They just can't understand it. And he spoke time and time again of his kingdom, but it was so difficult for them. What it means to be a part of the kingdom, what kind of redemption he was going to do, it was just hard for them to see. But Jesus was inviting them into being human under God's reign and what that's going to look like, and it was greater than they ever dreamt of. And the way evil was going to be defeated? By doing good. A sacrificial love. The way to deal with enemy? The enemies in your life? Hey, I need you to love them. And Jesus lived, literally lived that out. To conquer and defeat evil, he would have to let evil defeat him. Yet Jesus, hear me, fully believed that this is what redemption was. It wasn't like Jesus was hanging on the cross going, I don't get this. He fully believed it. This is how redemption would happen. And here's why I know. Because the night before he would be crucified, he sat down with disciples and go, let's talk about this. He had this Passover meal. And, and it would be celebrating the redemption of Israel. That was what the meal would do. The redemption of Israel from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They celebrated it every single year. And Jesus took the symbols at the table and go, hey, tomorrow's going to be like that. My blood, my body. It's not 10 plagues. It's not the judgment on Rome. I'm going to be the lamb. And you got to imagine, they're like, I don't understand. Because they didn't. I mean, we know all the way up to Acts, when Jesus like, literally just goes up to heaven in front of his disciples, they're still sitting there going, so when are you doing this kingdom thing, Jesus? They still don't understand. It takes them a moment. But Jesus would say things that just puzzle them. Hey, if you want to save your life, you got to lose it. You want to be the most influential person in the room? Well, become a servant or a slave to others. 
And he painted such an upside down picture. And the disciples come to Jerusalem with a picture of Jesus as the conquering king. And they missed all that Jesus was actually inviting them into. And they were, they were disciples. They were so close. And yet, still just went over their heads. I think too often, that's just you and me. We're disciples. We call Jesus Lord and follow him by faith, sure. But still, just it's adventures of missing the point sometimes. And hopefully today, we, we would see him as he really is. So how, how do they get there? So they keep telling Jesus here, these two men. He says, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happen. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women had said, but they did not see it. But, uh, but him they did not see. So it's again, there's, there's rumors of these empty, empty tomb. They haven't reported that they've met anybody that's run into Jesus yet. So it's like, we still don't know what has happened to this Jesus. So Jesus says to him, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ must, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, which is a way to kind of say the Old Testament, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, I'd love to be a fly on the wall for a Bible study led by Jesus about redemptive history. That would be wonderful. <laughs> Jesus walked me through all these scriptures. That'd be awesome. That's what he does. He pulls out passages and connects them to his story and how the resurrection of Jesus had everything to do with all the stories of the past. That's what he does, and it's amazing. You got to imagine, sitting down, all right, Jesus being like, you know what, there was creation, and I created this world good, and, I, and there was Adam and Eve, and we dwelt with them, and we, there, was, there was intimacy. It was, everything was good until it wasn't, and sin entered in. But, but God gave a promise that he would crush the head of the one who, who tempted Adam and Eve, that there would be victory over God's enemy in Satan. And that he would have a people and he would seek to bless the world through these people. And some days they did a great job and some days they did a terrible job because sin was still a problem. And God, hear me, if God's going to deal with the sin problem, and we all want him to deal with all the, all the issues in the world, all the brokenness, all the sin, all the struggles that exist in this world that we so desperately want God to deal with. If we want him to deal with it, the problem is we are part of the problem because we all have sin in our hearts. Our hearts just do that. So if he's going to deal with it, the way he would have to deal with it, ultimately, is just like get rid of everything or start changing it from the inside out. And that's what he seeks to do. But he, he goes through these stories and he tells probably all of the story of his people and, and even these prophets and how, yes, the prophets talked about the day, but, but they also talked about a suffering servant at times. And Isaiah 53 or Zechariah, they had these moments and Jesus probably is highlighting, hey, the, the servant was supposed to suffer. That was going to be a part of it, that there was going to be a suffering king. And God's ultimate purpose was not to destroy his enemies, but to die for them. Now, the fascinating thing is that's not when the guy's eyes suddenly open. 
it wasn't because they had all their theological ducks in a row. I mean, I don't know who's a better Bible study leader than Jesus. And Jesus led your Bible study, explained to the whole Old Testament. And they're still like, unrecognizing Jesus. And hear me, I'm, I'm for good theology. I don't think Jesus is against it. He just uses it as a method. But that's still not how we see Jesus. And then God binds himself to our human condition. And it's not a tragedy, but Jesus enters into our mess and takes upon himself the train wreck of human history and allows it to defeat him so that he can defeat it through resurrection. And it redefines the whole story. It redefines everything we read in the Old Testament. It redefines everything that God has said that this world is about, or at least gives clear definition of those things. And it may look different than we expect, but he's a different kind of king in a different kind of kingdom. And he invites people in. He's like, look, this is life abundant. And it doesn't look like what you think. You want to experience a tremendous life as life actually is? Then come live like me. Because hear me, loving your enemies is really bad advice if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There's much better things you should do with your enemies if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Loving your enemy is horrible. Your enemy will kill you, depending on the kind of enemy it is, and you lose. But in Jesus' view, loving your enemy is the way to live. If your hope is in a God who overcame evil and death by conquering it with his love and resurrected life, what life? If he didn't rise, we're wasting our time. I mean, Paul will say that. Like, we're the most to be pitied. We should be at brunch. If he didn't come out of the grave, we should be at brunch. Cool? Brunch is wonderful. A, but I can say that's a gift of God, and so is sitting here and resurrecting, uh, celebrating the resurrection. But if he did, everything I thought about the world, I have to rethink. The value systems that I inherit, even the thoughts of how I think God should work or shouldn't work, I have to start reevaluating this based upon what God has said. So they drew near to the village to where they were going. And he, Jesus, acted as if he were going further. Maybe he's like, hey, I need to see a man about a horse or something. Um, I don't know if that's was the saying at Jesus' time, but I don't even think it's a saying at our time. But uh, verse 29, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. Gotta love, them. I mean, just the, Jesus, come, come, come stay. Like, it's evening, day is far spent. Come, come, come stay. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, which is great. Jesus takes it. He's the guest at the meal, but yet he takes the lead here. And he blesses it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, what does that sound like? Communion, yeah, or Passover, yeah. It should sound like two pages before this, right? When Jesus sits down with his disciples and he took the elements at the table, it's like reenacting it for these two. Saying, hey, I need you to remember. It's not about the 10 plagues, but this is still redemption. And I am the lamb at the table. That's how it's going to happen. Because our enemy is not Rome. It's greater than that. If Jesus died just for in a battle so that Israel can be liberated, that's great. And then Jesus just died for one generation of Israelites. 
But that's not what he came to do. And he took redemption and said, it's something bigger. And I'm going to be the lamb. Just as Philippians would speak of, he, he left the throne, the authority, the place of glory to take the form of a servant and to die. He's like, that's what this meal is about. So if you think you missed redemption, you did not. Because this meal, I'm, I'm telling you, is about the redemption from sin and death itself. He breaks the bread, he gives the cup to deliver his people. And at this moment, their eyes were open and they recognized him. And then, I'm not even going to try to explain this, but he vanished out of their sight. And I think at that moment, when Jesus comes and goes, hey, I need you to understand this whole redemption thing is here. The redemption is not about giant military victories. It's about me being your redeemer by suffering and dying for sin and death. And to usher in at my resurrection a new kingdom that doesn't look like this world's kingdom. And it may not happen as fast as you hope. And there may still be winter storms in the midst of spring. And there may still be suffering that does not reach its full conclusion on this side of eternity. But guess what? Summer's coming. And one day it will. And we're going to get tastes of it here. We're going to get tastes of death as well. But the flowers have bloomed. Springtime's here. And victory is still ahead. As we come together as disciples, I mean, as we do this every week here, I know churches that do it like once a quarter or something. Great, I'm not going to knock on them too much, but like, come on. Like, this is like the, if I didn't preach and we just did this table every week, I honestly, I'd be fine with that. Um, I don't know why you'd still pay me to do that, but um, yeah. But for us to, to celebrate once a week and to take these elements and go, like, this is redemption. This is, this is God taking a whole people on this earth, a lost people of everyone affected by sin and death, and starting to bring them back into the fold of his household and his protection and his love. And ultimately out of the snares of the greatest enemy that God has, which is Satan. And Satan's not even powerful compared to God. And resurrection opened up a new day and a new vision, and a new hope, a living hope, as Peter would call it. And that's where we live in that tension of the, of the already parts of that and the not yet. <laughs> the flowers that have bloomed and the rainy, cold Saturdays like we experienced yesterday. Some days are more like one or the other. But there's still hope. And there's still new life. And Jesus puts his spirit in us and says, hey, come walk how I walked. Go love your enemy. Go do good. Act justly. Love mercy. I'm going to produce fruit in you, and it's going to be like, it's not even going to be that wonderful in terms of like how the world defines things, but it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-coming. Wonderful things that are simple. And go change the world because of a man that died 2,000 years ago. And we celebrate that every week. 
It's interesting because uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Um, sometimes we take this table and try to make it, I think, more somber than it's actually meant to be. Um, I think it's a, a weird reading of 1 Corinthians to, 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 to do that. And if people disagree, that's fine. I, I honor people that disagree with me all the time. But I think this table is like joy. Like Jesus would sit with his disciples. Like one of them who's like, hey, you're about to deny me, which is like one of the most shameful acts for a, a disciple to sh- deny the rabbi. Hey, you're going to deny me three times. Why don't we have a meal together? And I'm going to tell you all about it. Or, hey, you're going to betray me, but hey, we're going to dip in the same cup together. Or even these two guys who are like, I don't even see Jesus, even though I'm standing right with him. He's like, hey, let's have this meal together. This meal. And so if you're like, I don't feel worthy of the table, exactly. (laughs) Come to the table. Because Jesus invites you and says, yes. If If you think you're not worthy of the table, that's exactly where I want you to be come. Because that's why you need his body and his blood. And to remember that he died because you're not worthy of the table. So come. It's with joy that we have a redeemer. Not so we clean ourselves up and make sure that we're a certain amount of repentant and all that. Yeah. If we were divisive, uh, I won't go to Corinthians, sorry. Um, but as we come to this table, may we do so like running with joy. Like, we're not going to do that literally, but I would want to be the first one to be like, yeah, I, I, I need Jesus so much. I just want to be here. I want to see him. I want to get low. But then also, if you know Jesus' word, you're going to be like, I'm going to be last because he, Jesus said that was first. Um, <laughs> Bible jokes. I got them. 